I hope that big breakfast really uh, really hit the spot and you've got all that you need to stay awake and energize for your day. You know, uh, the, uh, the thing that we do around our house when we're uh, having people over, we're trying to get to know them and just kind of have a little icebreaker. My wife loves to ask people to share their most embarrassing moment. It's always a great way to kind of get to know people. Yeah, just one. Yeah, uh, this is probably why uh, very few people come to our house. But uh, if I would be honest, my life seems to be an endless string of embarrassing moments, and I add to that list all the time. And I'm sure you've got yours, I've got mine. As we get into the topic this morning, I'll just start with uh, relaying uh, one of mine that uh, in some ways framed my seminary experience, uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, I was involved in kind of student activities. So I was trying to encourage fellowship and people who were in school getting to know one another and families getting involved in that. And there was a part of uh, one event that included a big bonfire. And of course, if you're deputized with the job of providing a bonfire, you have one fear. And that is that for some reason the bonfire won't be much of a fire. And, and then uh, everything will just kind of crumble from there. So I want to make sure that this fire was going to be a good fire. And so I commandeered uh, a backhoe from one of my buddies. And we built about a 15-foot-high mound of wood and uh, kindling and all that thrown in there. I was concerned, though, because it had been raining. Fire was a little, the, the wood was a little wet. So I determined, you know, gasoline. That's, that's, that's the ticket. So I got a, I got a 10-gallon can of gasoline and uh, put that all over the fire. And I still was a little insecure, so I, I, I wadded up balls of paper, and I was putting those balls of paper in all the cracks and letting the gas soak into those. And um, just call it the grace of God. Call it uh, just uh, an inkling, a, a little insight. But I thought, you know, it's probably not the best idea to light a match and go right next to the fire. So I found a sock. I thought this was pretty creative. I found a sock in my car, and I put a rock in the sock and uh, put a little gas on the sock, you know. And I lit that sock, that little torch, and I just, and, 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 uh, and it wasn't much farther than, than where Row Red is. I threw it, and that sock flaming ball of fire, it hit that vapor wall of gas, and everything just exploded. And I was flat on my face, trembling. It was like that scene from, I think it's First Kings uh, 16 or 18, where, you know, Elijah and the fire comes down from heaven. And all those little balls of paper that I, they all shot out like cannons. And so it was mad. In fact, it looks something like this. Where's the next slide, Lon? Yeah. Looks something like that. Scared me for a minute. All these little mini fires were, were uh, uh, taken, taken flame around that. And I was just trembling. I was trembling. And, uh. Here's the good news, though. I got that fire started. And, of course, everybody came and they brought their stuff for some wars, and it was going to be nobody could get within 50 feet of that fire. 
the president of the seminary, a man named Luther Whitlock, I remember a moment where he, he, he sort of just put his arm on my shoulder and he says, Rock, uh, next time you decide to start a fire, just go ahead and call the fire department in advance. All right, we've all had experiences in our lives, and they just kind of put our feet back on the ground. They kind of humble us and remind us that we're very human and we have limitations. And I'll, I'll, maybe I'll tell you another story like that a little later in this message. Um, we're about to wrap up First Peter. Uh, Sandy and I have had some discussions about this particular message because it was a open message, but I really didn't want to introduce a different theme. I want to kind of stay in the, the basic stream of thought that, that we've been in. And as he and I discussed kind of where we've been and, and where we're going, I kind of landed on this idea uh, of humility. And I wanted to revisit that theme and go a little deeper and really talk about uh, what it means for your life and mine to develop this Jesus-like humility, uh, a humility that sets us apart from the world, a world that really is all about position and possession and prestige, popularity and power. And how do we as men uh, who want to appropriate the gospel in our lives, how do we move away from the conventional wisdom of our day and really live in a different way where our ambition really is to live as Jesus would live if he was in our place, to learn biblical humility. And so we're going to roll up our sleeves. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Uh, Peter is going to be our tutor And we're going to learn together, looking at some of these key questions, and you'll see those on the screen. What does Jesus' humility look like? Why does that even matter? Why is living with this Jesus-like humility, why why is that worth pursuing? And how do I do that? How do I actually grow to become an authentically humble person? How do I get there? Uh, Sandy gave this definition for humility a couple weeks ago. I think I have this right. Humility is being who you really are in the presence of God, nothing more and nothing less. Being who you really are in the presence of God, nothing more and nothing less. We've learned from our study in 1 Peter that that God can do amazing things when uh, he is able to have full access to the heart and mind and will of another human being. And we've seen that this Peter, who we've known from the Gospels, uh, is now a leader in the church, and how God has taken him on this, on this journey of maturity. And, and uh, now he's an elder statesman. Now uh, he is building himself into other leaders. You saw this a couple weeks ago, where Peter, as the elder statesman, as the one who has tried and been tried and tested is telling the younger men, men like himself a number of years ago, men who were cocky and self-absorbed and self-assured to learn how to give respect to the older men. If you're here a couple of weeks ago, Sandy talked about the need for older men to really build their lives into the younger men. And whether you're old or young to really learn how to live in mutual submission one to another. And so our, 
uh, sort of our foundation verse is this verse from 1 Peter 5, uh, 5 and 6. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. And so you ask the question, how is it that this um, arrogant, self-absorbed, hyperact- hyperactive, the poster child for the spiritual uh, attention deficit disorder, that's the disciple of, that's Peter, the act now think later disciple, how is it that he ends up being our teacher in this, on this subject of humility? And I thought about this. I thought, you know, T, uh, Peter teaching us about humility. So like Britney Spears teaching us about modesty. Uh, or, or Donald Trump teaching us about simplicity. Or Sandy Wilson teaching us about technology. I hope he hears that. Where does Peter get off talking about humility? Well, again, we've seen behind the scenes God's been at work in him, and we see in the Gospels really in high-def clarity the way that Jesus has been working to break Peter, to reshape and remold him. And uh, what I want to do this morning as we begin, I really want to set two bookends And I want to look at uh, really where Peter ended up, what we would call this morning Peter at his worst. And then I want to scroll back into the beginning of Peter's story and and look at what may be Peter at his best. And ask a question about what was going on between those two bookends and why this really matters for us. And the the reason it matters, I think, is because uh, the same drift away from humility and away from Jesus is the same kind of drift, the same kind of allurement that can happen in in your life and mine. So Peter's going to be our our tutor, and we're going to learn from him. First bookend, first snapshot that I want us to look at uh, is uh, John chapter 13. So uh, I hope you brought your Bibles. Go ahead and turn to John 13. This is, uh, you know, we're in the Lenten season. This is a a very significant uh, moment as Jesus gathers his disciples together. He's preparing them for the events that are going to happen, all of the violence, all of the confusion, all the hostility that's about to happen. He wants to pull them away and speak some words into their hearts. And so he tells his disciples that he wants them to prepare a place where they can celebrate together the, the Passover feast. This is the upper room discourse in the Gospel of John. And so the disciples, we don't know who was given what job, but uh, they have the feast prepared. They're in the upper room. Jesus is not there yet. The table is set. The food is ready. The room has been prepared. But if you remember the story, there was one detail that somebody overlooked. Remember what that was? Somebody forgot to hire 
the little servant boy who would have the job of washing the feet of the disciples as they came into the room. And maybe you've had an experience like this where you're in a gathering and something isn't done. Your first question is, was that my job? I don't remember. Did somebody tell me to do that? And I'm sure some of that's going on. And maybe the various disciples are thinking, no, no, that wasn't my job. I wonder whose job it was. And people are looking around, but nobody's saying anything. Nobody's doing anything. So finally, they just determine, you know what, I guess we'll just overlook that little detail and we'll just recline and we'll wait. And they wait and Jesus finally enters into the room. He sees uh, uh, a dozen dirty pair of feet. Below that, he sees a dozen pride-filled hearts that were not about to lower themselves and take up such a menial, dirty task as washing the feet of their fellow brothers, the, the fellow disciples. And it's important to put yourself in the, in the, the, uh, the place of Jesus here. He, he's days before his own death, trial, beating, mocking, execution, carrying quite literally the weight of the world. These are the men, these men that he's looking at with the dirty feet and the pride-filled hearts are the men that he's chosen to take the good news to the world. And he sees them and they're all lounging around, filled with pride. What would you have done if you were him? Tell you what I would have done. I would have given them a you, you slobs. I mean, after all that I've taught you and modeled for you, don't you think that one of you could have? He could have done that. He could have been so disappointed that he walked right back out the door. I could imagine him doing that too. He didn't do that. Remember what he did. Without saying a word, he went over to the corner, took off his outer garment put on the uniform of a towel boy. And one by one, he went around the circle of these pride-filled, self-absorbed disciples, took their dirty feet in his hands and poured clean water on them and washed them and dried them with a towel. And you remember when he gets to Peter, Peter Peter, uh, we can always count on Peter to verbalize what he's thinking. And you'll remember what he says. This is uh, John 13, 8. No, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Peter, who's an extreme guy, didn't get it. And so he says, then, Lord, uh, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Just do, just wash me, Lord. Just take care of everything. And this is right from the original Greek. Jesus said to him, Peter, would you just chill out? Just chill. You're missing it. And then these words that really have shaped the ministry of compassion in the church for centuries, John 13, 12. Do you understand what I've done to you? Jesus says. Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. 
And then these words, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now you know these things. You will be blessed if you, what? Do them. It's one of the tenderest moments, I think, in the ministry of Jesus. And I think as the, after Jesus was crucified and buried and raised and ascended back into heaven, I think the disciples, as they gathered together and reminisced about their time with Jesus, probably had a few favorite moments. Man, you remember when we, I can almost guarantee you that this moment right here was on everybody's list. It's a defining moment, a tender moment. But if you know the progression of the story, you know that the tenderness of that moment was just stripped away, ripped away. As Jesus makes this statement, scroll down to verse 21. After he had said this, teaching them about what was to come, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testifies, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. What? And they're looking at one another. What did he just say? And then look at verse 22. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. It's not me, is it you? One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which are always like that. John, writing his own, own gospel, always likes to remind us that he's the one that Jesus loved. He's not our teacher on humility today. It's okay. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter emotioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Verse 26, Jesus says, so one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in this dish. And so he dips the dish, dips the bread into the dish and he hands it to Judas. In a way that I think is symbolic because in just a matter of moments, Judas is going to hand Jesus over himself. And we're told here that as soon as Judas received that morsel of bread and ate it, he walked out of the room. What John says, he he walked out into the darkness. And Peter sees this. And Peter, aware of what is going on, maybe in a way the other disciples weren't aware Peter determines that this would be a good time to remind Jesus how committed he was. And so Peter, vintage Peter, uh, wants Jesus and all the other ten disciples who were left in the room to know that he was the one guy that Jesus would count on. Verse 37, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus, if there is one guy in this room that you can count on, you're looking at him right now. You're listening, you're listening to him. I, I got your back, Jesus. I'm your guy. And Jesus, knowing all things, turns to Peter, verse 38. And in my mind, I just was, as I meditated on this verse, kind of imagine Jesus with his eye, eyebrows raised after Peter makes this, this statement. Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. Lay down. And I imagine Jesus, really? Will you really lay down your life for me, verse 38? I I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And of course, we know, reading those 
words of Jesus. We know the rest of the story. We know what Peter didn't even know about himself in this moment. And we know what followed is that the self-confident, self-assured, prideful declaration would come back to bite him in a big way. Because it was just a matter of hours that this one who promised Jesus that he was committed and devoted and would go wherever Jesus was going and would lay down his life for him. When, when Peter saw what the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers were doing to Jesus, beating him and whipping him to the extent that his back was like, was like ground beef. It was just a mauled and mess of flesh and blood and bones and muscle. And as Peter looks at all that, he has one thought. If that's what they're going to do to him, that's probably what they're fixing to do to his disciples. And Peter determines in that moment that he's going to go incognito. He doesn't want anybody to know he's associated with Jesus. And so not once, but three times, Peter denies not just that he knew Jesus, not just that he was denied, not just that he was Jesus' disciple, but denied three times that he even knew Jesus. Three times. And we would say, you know, that, that may be Peter at his worst. Talked a big game. But when things came down to really standing with Jesus, he completely disappeared. That's one bookend. Here's the other bookend. Let's turn to Luke 5. Luke 5. This is really at the beginning of uh, the story. This is really the first encounter uh, that Jesus and Peter have. Luke 5, 1 through 9. Let me just read this passage and make a few comments about this. We'll walk through this maybe a little briefer than we just walked through John 13. One day as Jesus was standing by uh, the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats. The, The crowds were pressing in on him so much that he could no longer stand on dry ground. So he gets in a boat. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon Peter. I would say that was all part of God's plan. And he asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Verse 5. Simon answered, Master, and you could say teacher or rabbi, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, look at his response. He fell at Jesus' feet and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. A number of staggering things about this particular encounter. Number one is that this is the best day of fishing that Simon had ever had in his life. You remember he was a professional fisherman. 
You could say it in terms that we use today. This is biggest commission check was on the table right here. His biggest deal was on the table right here. And he walked away from it. And you look at this story from, from another angle um, in this second bookend. Uh, Jesus comes into Peter's world. You could say that Jesus was on Simon Peter's turf. Uh, Simon was a fisherman. We're told he had partners. He, he was running a fishing business. We're told that he had fished all night and that they were actually putting the nets away. And the stranger that is teaching tells a professional fisherman who's been fishing all night, get the nets ready and let's go back fishing out into the deep water. I don't know about you, but um, if I was Simon Peter, I would have said, who are you? I mean, this is my, I, I fish here all the time. I know this area, been there, done that. And we don't know what it was that compelled Peter to listen to the words of Jesus in the way that he did, but he listened. Because you said so, and he puts out the nets and he catches a haul of, hauls in a number of fish that he never fished before. And then his response, Simon, when he saw that he fell at Jesus' feet like the lepers did, like Mary did. He fell at Jesus' feet and said, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus sees this response and says to Simon, I've got a, I've got a new plan for your life. You're no longer going to be a fisher of fish. You're going to be a fisher of men. And he left everything and he followed Jesus. This, if John 13 was a bookend snapshot of Peter at his worst, this bookend from Luke 5 may just be a snapshot of Peter at his best. And there's something about this that really bothers me. I've never really looked at Peter's story through the particular lens that I have this week. What bothers me is that Peter's level of humility, teachability, lead ability, is higher at the beginning of his relationship with Jesus than it is at the end of it. Or, or to say it another way, when Peter knew the least about Jesus, he was the most humble in his presence. Wouldn't you think that it would go the opposite way? Again, Peter, who, who, who lived with Jesus and traveled with Jesus and listened to the parables and saw Jesus do all these miracles, literally raising people from the dead. At the end of that three years, 24-7, Peter is more, uh, is more humility challenged than he is when he doesn't even know Jesus' name. And to me, that seems really odd. And you've got to ask the question, you know, the, the great theological question, what's that about? I think one of the great commentaries on this dynamic, uh, great commentaries that I read this past week, is from a, a well-known theologian named Dr. Seuss. Uh, it's, a, it's a book, it's a story called, called Yertle the Turtle. It's one of my favorites growing up. I'll remind you of it. It's a story of a little pond of turtles that is ruled by a turtle named Yertle. 
one day Yurt will decide that his kingdom needs extending. I'm the king, he says, of all that I see, but I don't see enough. That's the trouble with me. And so Yurtle determines that all the other turtles should be stacked up one on top of the other to make his throne, to extend his glory and his power and his view of his kingdom. First dozens, then hundreds of turtles. And he could see for miles, I'm Yurtle the turtle, oh marvelous me. I'm the ruler of all that I see. But for Yurtle, his reign didn't last long. For the turtle on the bottom did a plain thing. He burped, and that burp shook shook the throne of the king. And today, great Ural, that marvelous he, is the king of the mud. That's all he can see. Here's the turtle. Even if you're Ural, VIP, MVP, CEO, BMOC, you're just one little burp away from reality. We have, you and I do, a kingdom problems. I want to build my own little kingdom. It's all about me. My family, my work, my friends, my time, my resources. And every once in a while, in God's grace, he designs a little burp someplace and we're brought back to reality. The reality for Peter, though he started well, started humbly walking with Jesus. You get the sense about Peter that being one of Jesus' disciples was really a popular, it gave him fame and notoriety, gave him attention, a sense of power and prestige. And so the trajectory of Peter's humility was going in completely the wrong direction. And that leads to the third thing, the third point I want to make. Because it's easy to think that if I'm just around the church and if I keep my nosing God's word, then I will somehow be insulated and inoculated from this kind of kingdom building problem that we see in Peter and others. And I would suggest to you that church involvement can actually keep you from cultivating Jesus like humility. Sometimes around the church, as we plug in and get involved our involvement, listen, our involvement becomes something that is now a whole new realm of, of potential pride for us. Who can win the best servant award, the most committed award, the quickest to the Bible verse award, the sacrificial giving award, the regular in worship award. Sadly, some of us, though we've been walking with Jesus for a long time, Truth be known, truth be known, our level of arrogance and superiority is actually growing instead of being reduced. And we're more likely to judge or compare or look down on others who don't quite have their life together like we think we do. I mean, I wake up early on Thursday morning and go to the Amen Bible study for Pete's sakes. And like Peter, we're more puffed up and self-absorbed now than we were when we first came to Christ in the first place. And I think sometimes the Holy Spirit has to take out a a spiritual two-by-four and just whack us up in the side of the head and bring us to a sense of clarity about this. I've told you about my bonfire story. Let me tell you about another story that happened to me recently. I was away in Texas. I was flying back to Memphis. 
and my flight was to leave San Antonio at 6.20 Friday morning. And I'm sure this has happened to you. I got a little distracted, woke up a little late, had a little trouble with traffic, got to the airport a little later than I thought I did, and uh, I got to the airport at about 5.45. My plane left at 6.30. And I'm, I'm looking at this line of people waiting to go through security. It was about 100 people long. And inside, I'm, I'm considering my options. I don't know if you've ever done this, but I've done this before. I pulled out $5, and I'm thinking, okay, what I'm going to do, I'm going to go up to somebody up there who's like four or five people away, and I'm just going to say, hey, I'm about ready to miss my plane. I'm going to give you $5 if you just let me in front of you. I don't know if you've ever tried that, but it actually works. But, it, but um, $10 for sure will work. Uh, but I was cheap that morning. I was just trying to... Uh, hedge my bets and see if it would work and I just you know I'm just there and you know how it is when you're late and you're looking up there and you're watching people casually interact with the security people and with and you're you're judging them you're in your heart you're killing them what are they doing and people are taking their time and finally I'm up there and I'm just about ready to put all my stuff in the little plastic holders and whatnot take my left top out and I hear in the intercom uh, Northwest flight 585 leaving from Memphis last call Ooh. in front of me is a travel challenged woman she has five big plastic bins she has two carry-ons one of the carry-ons was actually a poodle the fact that it was a poodle just makes the story all the better I think she didn't know. Apparently, she'd never traveled with her poodle before. She didn't know that she was actually supposed to take the poodle out of the carry-on and not send the poodle through the x-ray machine. <laughs> and if it wasn't for little Fluffy's bark at just the right time, that's exactly what would happen. So they back little Fluffy out, and that takes time, and I'm just livid. And she's laughing and talking to people, and I'm thinking things that I know I can't say. I'm just trying to. So finally, she, she gets her fluffy all taken care of, and I get through, and I'm running, and I grab my stuff. And you know how this is. You just feel like, you know what? She, she needs to learn something about travel. Someone needs to say something to her. I'll do it. <laughs> so I say to her, this is exactly what I said. I said, ma'am, Next time, leave your stupid dog at home. And I win. And I no, no sooner did I step in that plane than that door closed right behind me. And I went to my seat, and I sat down, and I took a deep breath. And I opened my Bible to a verse I was going to be preaching on that weekend. Elon, once you put this up, this is Philippians 2, 5 through 8. And this is what I read. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. 
And without trying to be overdramatic, I just started to weep. As I realized in that moment how far my heart was to the heart of Jesus. Who came not to be served, but to serve. And I was reminded how sad and painful my own motives and actions were. And if I could have, in that moment, I would have climbed right back off that plane and tried to find that lady, pat her little poodle on the head and say, man, I'm really, I'm really sorry. But I will probably never see her again. How are you doing with your own little kingdom this week? It's a great story told about Don Shula, ex-coach of the Miami Dolphins. He was traveling with his wife in Maine. And he and his wife went to a movie theater. They walk into the theater, and everybody starts to cheer. And so Shula says to his wife, honey, it's amazing. Wherever I go, people know me and love me. And this guy comes up to him right before the movie starts, and Shula says to him, I'm just, I didn't know that you'd recognize me. I'm really surprised. It's, it's, it's nice to meet you. Yeah, Don Shula. And the guy says, I have no idea who that is or who you are. Um, but the manager said he wouldn't start the movie until there are at least ten people in the room. We're just glad you and your wife walked in. <laughs> Sometimes people who are up here <clears throat> are brought down here, and our feet are back on the ground, and we're reminded that... Um, the way of Jesus leads us in a different direction, different way of doing life. And what I want to do in the few minutes that we have left is just walk through some practical takeaways for us. Gary Thomas, who is a writer I really enjoy reading, says this about humility. He says, we don't become humble as much as we learn to practice humility. And so what I want to do is just pull this together and talk about four practices. You can call them four baby steps for the humble challenged among us. And here's the first one. The first one is uh, practice giving preference to others. Practice giving preference to others. A great story told about, about General William Booth who was uh, involved in the Salvation Army and uh, was just an incredible leader. There was an event where all the army, all the people in that ministry were together. It was in New York, and it was going to be a time where he cast the vision for the next era of the Salvation Army ministry. So everybody's wondering, what's he going to talk about? What direction are we going in? What's he going to say? And at the last minute... Something happened in his travel schedule, and he wasn't able to attend. So he sent a telegram. And the master of the ceremonies carried the telegram as if it was like the Holy Grail, and everybody listened in as he read what William Booth sent. It was one word. Others. Others. Next week is Palm Sunday. Those who were looking out into the horizon 
waiting for the Messiah to come. We're looking for a conquering hero who will come into Jerusalem on a white stallion to take charge and to set up an earthly kingdom. Do you remember how Jesus came in? On a humble donkey, a borrowed donkey. And you remember that as Jesus lived out his life from beginning to the cross to the ascension to his ministry right now where he is in heaven always interceding for you, we're told in the book of Colossians. Jesus was giving preference to everybody in his life, dying to himself in order to take up the needs of others. Every day he lived, he lived serving others. And just to put this on the lower shelf, here's one thing that you can do today to put some feet on that. James 1.19 says this, Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. One way you grow in the practice of humility is to talk less about who or what or how you are and just cultivate the ability of shutting up. <laughs> Instead of waiting for the other person to finish so that you can turn the conversation back to yourself, instead ask them another question to draw them out. Practice giving preference to another person this week. Here's a second way you practice humility. Practice learning from others. Practically, it means being open to the suggestions or the correction or even the criticism of another person. It's a major component in humility. Part of humility is this idea of teachability. Being willing to listen and learn. Being willing to, to grow and to take on the, uh, the advice and wisdom of other people. Uh, you see it in little kids, three years old. They're trying to put something together, and you try to help them. And what do they say? No, I do it myself. We're kind of taught that way. And we think that really to be a man, to be mature, is to have all the answers for everything that comes up in life. Proverbs fifteen twelve. A mocker resists correction. He will not consult the wise. I think so much of our pride really is rooted in insecurity. We are so afraid that we'll be asked a question and we don't know the answer to it. One of the keys to cultivating humility is to honestly acknowledge that we are wrong. Some of us in our marriages, that's, our, that's really one of our biggest challenges is that we, we are unwilling, not unable, but unwilling to humble ourselves before our wives and say, you know what, honey, that is exactly right. And I was exactly wrong. What you said right there, that's, that's what we're going to do. And for some reason, for some of us, um, Speaking those words is like speaking Mandarin Chinese. We just can't seem to get the words out. Real sign of maturity is not getting to the point where you know any, everything. It's getting to the point where you freely, freely admit that you still have a whole lot to learn. Humility and teachability really do go together. Third, practice the posture of receiving. In other words, is to live with a growing awareness that everything you have 
you have because it was given to you by God. You didn't earn it. You didn't get it the old-fashioned way, the E.F. Hutton way. You didn't earn it. It was given to you. You don't have it because of your drive or your earning power or your personality or your key networking skills or your charm or your masterful timing. None of it. You have what you have for one reason, because of the loving, gracious provision of God. Write down this text, and you can go and look at this verse later this week, Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18. Moses says to the Israelites, You may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. It's a script of our day. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power, he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And he goes on. Learn to cultivate this, this attitude of gratitude, a humble thanksgiving of heart. And I would say with a group like this, who has been uniquely blessed by God, relationally, materially, spiritually, our list of Thanksgiving should be very, very long. The posture of receiving, acknowledging, like your salvation, everything you have in your life, you have because it's been given to you as a gift from God. Last thing. Fourth way you can practice humility is to practice surrendering your plans to God. This is what we usually do. We make plans without ever consulting God. We pray and ask God to bless those plans, plans that he was not a part of in the first place. Then, when the plans all crumble, we look to heaven and we basically say, God, what's with that? That's exactly wrong. That's doing life exactly backwards. We end this morning where we began, 1 Peter 5, 5. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, which means God actually stands in the way of the proud. God creates static and, and, and uh, barriers to those who are proud. But he pours grace into the humble. Let me ask you, how are you doing? This is very practical. How are you, how are you doing these days with your interruptibility? Unplanned moments that demand that you adjust your agenda in the moment. Practicing humility means growing in your ability to be interrupted gracefully. If you look at the Gospels, some of the most memorable encounters with Jesus are those when he was interrupted. Most likely today, you're going to be interrupted. Some of you, a whole lot. And in your mind, this is pretty much your default mode when you're interrupted. What do you want? I'm saying this is your chance to practice humility. And in that moment, to ask maybe a different set of questions, because maybe that interruption is a divinely orchestrated interruption. Maybe it's an opportunity for you to engage in ministry in a different way in this person's life. Maybe it's an opportunity for you to learn something or share the gospel or pry you away from your own agenda and to get you back on 
God's agenda. Maybe it's going to be presenting a need before you that you need to respond to. And your pride is going to scream out, no, I don't have time for this. And I'm just going to say this, this is your chance to begin to cultivate, to practice this kind of Jesus-like humility. That's the agenda that, that Jesus accomplished in the life of Peter. As he pried Peter away from his own agenda and his own way of, of, uh, of even understanding the role of Jesus. And God, how Jesus broke him and how he reshaped him. And then how he recommissioned him as a radically different man. And so now, at the end of his life, he is able, the humility challenged, it's all about me, Peter, is able to say with integrity at the end of his life, all of you, like me, clothe yourselves with humility. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Let me just end by reading this one verse, Micah 6, 8. Some of you know this well. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Today is your chance to practice Jesus-like humility. Lord Jesus, thank you for your patience. Thank you for demonstrating to us what a life of humility even looks like. For though you were God, you left the comforts and perks of heaven behind and you came into this dusty world not to be served, not to wield power, but to be a servant. So much so that you became obedient even to the point of death. And as we follow in your steps, we would have to acknowledge before you this morning that we are way behind. We're not walking with you in this humble life. We, we, we are lagging way too far behind. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your grace. Do for us what you did for Peter. Just to pry us away from our own agenda and self-importance. To break us and to reshape us and then recommission us to be your humble representatives in this arrogant, dark world that you've placed us in. And as we live out this virtue of humility, may, may it bring glory to you. May it be a blessing, especially to those who are closest to us. Can't do it without your help. So, Holy Spirit, we ask for that. In Jesus' name, amen.